This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tim and Pam Brady celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary Wednesday. But for Tim, who's a volunteer with the Big Thompson Canyon Fire Department, the celebration was tempered by memories of what happened five years ago, one of the worst floods in state history. Tim was in the thick of it, just off U.S. 34 near Loveland. For a time, he was the only first responder on scene, and he's credited with saving dozens of lives. Tim is on the phone from his home in Bartram Park, Colorado. Tim, welcome to the program. Uh, How's it going, Ryan? Doing well. I wonder how hard that dichotomy is, trying to celebrate your anniversary in the midst of what happened five years ago. How how often do you find yourself thinking about the flood? It just you know you try to put it in the back of your mind, but uh, this weekend we had a lot of uh, last weekend we had a lot of events that you know transpired, and um, it brings it all back up where you start thinking about it again, especially when people start you know talking about certain things that they remember that you you try to forget about. It kind of comes back to the forefront. These remembrances, yeah. uh, where you live in in Larimer County. Uh, two women didn't make it, Evelyn Starner and Patty Goodwine. And I'll mention that your home was among those damaged or destroyed. You were displaced for almost three months. And this wasn't yeah. a situation you just parachuted into. This was your life as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, like like today, you look back, the weather, you know, like after the flood is a lot like it is right now. But uh, today, uh, five years ago, was the day after all the devastation when we started trying to, you know, find out who was where, who was missing. Um, I was just thinking about earlier, getting a call. It was like a a Charlie Delta for a woman with a broken leg. You're not thinking a lot of, you know, how how bad it is. I just got in my truck, tried to go down to the bottom, and the road was gone. So for some reason, I, I left my pickup truck on the other on the other side of where it was washed out. So I was able to hike around and get to my truck and then go to that call. And when I got there, it was, it was something I'll never forget. People were, uh, you know, screaming hysterical, uh, like huddled up, like, you know, in, on, on the couch, um, you know, and they were helpless. And, uh, you know, I went in and, I told everybody, you know, it's going to be be okay. And, and I went outside, and I was like, holy mackerel. I couldn't believe it. You know, I had to get myself together and uh, try to get some kind of game plan, you know. And I remember getting on the radio, talking to one of the chiefs, and um, I told him, I said, Cedar Cove is gone. And they're like, what do you mean it's gone? I'm like, it's gone. It didn't look anything like it did the day before. Cedar Cove, you said. Excuse me? Cedar Cove, you said. Yeah, it's just a little west of here. So, I mean, it's it's still, it's never going to, it doesn't look anything like it did. Back then it was full of trees. The river ran through it. You know, there was sprinkling of houses down there, and it just came through there. And it was like a, a venturi as it came down, like the north fork of... Uh, you know, to Big Thompson into Drake, and it just, once it hit Drake, it was just moving so fast, it just took out everything in its path, you know. 
You talked about the Charlie Delta for someone with a severely broken leg. Uh, this was Flo Horn, and you ended up flagging down uh, an emergency medical technician and later a medevac to right. take to take her to a hospital. And and so you're looking around your own community. You're seeing it almost immediately transformed by the power of these floodwaters. Right. H- how did it feel in that headspace to have everyone looking to you? To be the, I don't want to say savior, but to, to, to be the trusted authority. How did it feel? To me, I just went into, uh, you know, with my training as a firefighter. Um, earlier that year, I went, I did uh, Blue Card, which is, uh, it's like incident um, management. That's the best way I could put it for a layman. And you just go into, a, I don't know, you go into a mode, you know, of just trying to, get things done. I remember at one point uh, that night, I kind of created different, uh, like, divisions. You know, I had, and I would assign people to those divisions, so my workload wasn't as crazy and hectic as it was today, five years ago, because today, five years ago, we were stuck three miles, you know, we had no way out, and I was running from one end to the other. People were getting into fights. I remember at one point they tried to move flow when I was down the other end because rumor went around that the dam broke. So by the time I got back up to to Grouse Hollow where flow was, um, they were trying to move her. And, you know, just so that night, you know, this night, tonight, Friday night, I, I kind of like developed a plan where I, I had like a, a landing zone supervisor, um, a logistics supervisor, a medical supervisor, and then I had a supervisor helping us build the road back here up to Bar- uh, Bear Track to try to get out. So, you yeah, know. I, th- I think what I hear so much in this story is the isolation that you right. must have felt sort of uh, walled in by the flood in many ways. Right. Um, when I was, you, I was a sheriff, the mayor, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for for from today till Monday, I didn't get out. I was so. <sighs> It was it was like four days, and we kind of just you know tried to get people out in order of needs as far as you know medical needs. If you know we had people that needed medicine, or you know we had people with heart conditions or elderly people, we got them lined up as soon as we got this road built. That they were the first ones that we got out. You know, it's no small task to just build a road in a matter of hours or days. I have to think. Nope. Uh, did you think you were going to die? I don't want to sound dramatic, but I think you didn't know what the outcome would be. But I think I was, there was like, there's two instances where I came close, you know, and uh, just trying to do things without thinking ahead, you know, like I, there was a car in the river, the lights were on, and, you know, water was rushing through it, so I wasn't thinking of my own safety, I was thinking maybe there was somebody in there, and, you know... I slipped in and I got myself out, but that was one time. And then there was another time that I, I almost fell in the river because I was looking at Patty, a good one, and I was focused, you know, on her, and she was on the other side of the river, and I was like, are you okay? And she said, for now, and, you know, the the the, the land that I was standing on was like sloughing off as I was talking to her, and I slipped. And my wife was in the truck, but thank God she didn't see that because, she probably would have got mad at me for getting that close, you know, to try to 
you know, I was more focused on Patty at that time, you know, or what I could do. Yes, Patty, Patty Goodwine among right. the fatalities. And I understand that, that you do a fair amount of would have, should have, could have these days. I wonder what prompts that because uh, I look at it and, and see the hundred or so lives that you're credited with saving. Well, Ryan, you know, like being a firefighter, we're, we're helpers, you know. And, yeah, I should be looking at, you know, the lives that were saved. But, you know, that's what bothers me, the ones that I couldn't save, you know. So it's, they say, you know, the worst thing in the world for a helper is to feel helpless. And that's how I felt. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and perhaps you know that it's been five years since those floods that tore through parts of Colorado. And I'm speaking with Tim Brady, who uh, to this day is a volunteer firefighter with the Big Thompson Canyon Fire Department, and uh, who at one point uh, was really the only uh, law enforcement official first responder on scene uh in an area near Loveland during those floods. And it makes me wonder about your own mental health. We've focused on this program uh, on the idea that helpers need help sometimes in the wake of disaster. Do you think Do you think that help is as available as it should be? And I wonder if you sought it yourself. We, uh, since the flood, the uh, Loveland uh, Fire Rescue Authority has started a peer support program uh, it's headed by Dr. Teresa Richards, and uh, I'm a member of it now. I went through about 40 hours of training up in uh, Fort Collins through PFA, and it, it's for us to help uh, others, you know, in times of need. But I'll tell you, sometimes, you know, we do a monthly training. It's usually two hours a month, and I'll tell you, my wife says I come home. It seems like it helps me more sometimes than it does the people I'm trying to help. So. Huh. We have we've started a peer support program and it, it it's it's really good. It kind of you know helps me to look at things and make sure that I don't go down the wrong road. You know, what is the wrong road? You know, you could get into uh, PTSD. You know, where you let this you know let it eat away at you. You know, and you don't want that to happen. You know, post traumatic stress syndrome. You know. Uh, you know, it's okay to have post-traumatic stress. You just don't want it to become, you know, a syndrome where you're you're not eating or you're, you know, you're drinking or you're fighting with your family. You know, you don't want it to go down that road, you know. Tim Brady, uh, uh, earlier this week on the program, we spoke with someone in Lyons, which is really hard hit by the floods, but, you know, who who doesn't want new residents to become complacent about floods. And FEMA tells us that the risk of flood is quite high in Colorado and will remain so. What did you learn about the power of floods, about the unpredictability of these disasters that you would impart to others, uh, everyday citizens or first responders? You just have to respect the warnings. You know, I mean, just like what's going on down in the, the Carolinas right now. It's not a joke, man. You know, I mean... I think the reason we lost a lot less lives this time than the 76 flood is because, you know, we have more more of a warning, you know. Um, I'm sure in the future it'll be even, you know, better as far as communication. So um, just respect the uh, 
the warnings. They're not a joke. You know, water is powerful. I've seen it, you know, just watching it that day. It just, I could still see it in my head. It it was taking trees down. I could, you just, I'm talking big, big pines, you know, just ripping them right off the edge and taking them in. So it's no joke, you know. Thanks so much for being with us. And you make reference there to the big Thompson flood of 1976, which was far more lethal uh, and had far less warning. That's Tim Brady, who is still a volunteer with the Big Thompson Canyon Fire Department. He's credited with saving more than 100 lives during the floods that ripped through northern Colorado five years ago. Remains one of the worst natural disasters in state history. And even now, five years later, some people are still trying to return home. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis is looking into the ongoing challenges. A group of Habitat for Humanity volunteers cut wood and paint the siding of a newly built duplex. The site is near the entrance to Lyons, a small town in Boulder County. Amanda Anderson moved here 11 years ago. I was a single mother. I worked three jobs and I bought my mobile home in Riverbend for $7,000. Today, she's helping build the duplex she'll eventually move into. Her mobile home, along with dozens of others, was destroyed by the devastating floods in September of 2013. Anderson remembers being woken up by frantic phone calls at 3 a.m. from a friend. And Sally said, Amanda, you have five minutes. And I opened the front door, and the water was already to the steps. And we went up to my friend Sally's house, which is up on a hill, and watched the town just dissolve. The town was uninhabitable for months. There was no clean water. Entire roads and bridges were washed away. Some people eventually rebuilt the homes they lost. Others took a buyout from the federal government and moved elsewhere. But Anderson and others in the trailer park or rentals didn't have options. Their homes were gone, the owner of the trailer park took the buyout, so no new park could be built. And the water washed away what was left of affordable housing in the area. A lot of my community is gone. We miss them very much, and and that's where the tears start for me. That's where the tears start for me. That's Danny Schaefer, Anderson's husband. They married a year after the flood. The family has since been renting in town, but they knew the only way they could stay was if the lost affordable housing was eventually replaced. The average home price in Lyons is more than $600,000. Schaefer and Anderson were close to moving out of the state entirely until they found out just this summer they were approved for the Habitat for Humanity home. The six units are currently the only affordable housing project in Lyons. Anderson had held out hope for more. Since the big town meeting, one of the town administrator people, we promise we'll bring everyone home. We promise. And to me, it was just like the promise wasn't kept. I watched everyone that I loved, that I lived next to, move away. The town tried to find more housing options. But in 2015, Lyons voters rejected a plan to use public parkland for 60 affordable housing units for displaced residents. Victoria Simonson is the town administrator. That was very, very disheartening to people that had lived here prior to the flood that kind of got this message that we didn't want you. We weren't willing to give up a park for you to stay part of our community. And that was a really, a really low point in our recovery. The town is still working to return displaced residents to Lyons. Simonson says it's been tough to find available land, though, now that more than a third of the town is in the newly remapped floodplain and expensive or off-limits to build on. 
But the town is now in negotiations to buy a property big enough for 40 affordable housing units. And if the project is a go, Simonson says she'll reach out to everyone she knows who might have moved away or is still in need of a home. They are accepting situations that weren't there prior to the flood, maybe just renting a room, uh, some new space built in a garage, living with several people in a house. Simonson says she wants them to feel part of the community again. But she says it's a change community. There are lots of new faces in town. She says a fourth of Lyons residents have moved here since the flood. What won't be the same is um, the close-knit community we were. About 100 people had to leave Lyons, and most of those won't be coming back. Like Donna Boone, she's 73 and has owned a beauty salon in Lyons for more than 30 years. The hair company sits on Main Street. The walls are painted dusty pink to match the salon chair Boone sits in. Her gray hair is long and straight. Boone's business wasn't hit by the flood, but her mobile home was destroyed. Every time it rains really hard, I still get scared. She now commutes to her salon from Loveland, where she bought a new mobile home. It takes her more than 30 minutes each way. But after the no vote on affordable housing in 2015, Boone didn't see a way to stay in Lyons. It broke my heart because I figured I'd, I'd live and work here until the day I died. Before the flood, you know, we had people who were low income, middle income, and, and high income. And uh, it seems like the people who are low income are being forced out. Boone says even if the town offered her affordable housing in Lyons, she wouldn't take it now. She's settled in Loveland and will sell her shop if she can find a buyer. It's not how I wanted to do it, but time has taken a toll on me. About 30 minutes down the road from Lyons is Jamestown. Its main street is just now being repaved after the flood nearly wiped the very small mountain community off the map. Tara Schettinger is the flood recovery manager and former mayor of Jamestown. She was warned how long recovery would take and remembers the urgency she felt to rebuild. I was nervous that if we didn't have running water before school started, that people would put their kids in school down below, re-sign leases for another year, and maybe never return. The town got the water running in time, and Schettinger says most people moved back to Jamestown. Some rentals were lost along with the tenants, and some homes still aren't fixed. Along the creek just past Town Hall stands a destroyed home. The whole front half is gone. Jody Sharp is the owner. She describes the structure as looking like a dollhouse. You can see inside it right now, into the living room and the bathroom. Sharp says there's been lots of obstacles that have kept her from moving on. She felt the federal buyout offer was too low, and the money she got from her flood insurance wasn't enough to completely cover the rebuild. She's working on getting a construction loan. Yeah, I know for many people in the town, my home is like the last remaining reminder of the flood. And, you know, it's sad for me that it's taken so long to get to the point where I'm finally ready to pour a foundation any day now. Sharp's home is like a living memory of that moment, standing there unchanged. But despite that, she says life keeps moving. Like a week after the flood, my son got married. Four months later, my first grandchild was born. Now I have four grandkids. My mom died a year after the flood. What she's saying is five years is a long time and a lot has changed. But the thing that's remained constant for Sharp and others still displaced is that hope to return home. I want to live in the community that I lived in 
for 11 years before the flood. It's really such a wonderful, resilient community, and I want to be part of it again. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. About half of third graders in this state cannot read at grade level. Tomorrow, Colorado Matters presents the final episode in a special education series from American Public Media. It's called Hard Words, Why American Kids Aren't Being Taught to Read. Scientific research gives us a solid understanding of how children should be taught to read, but many educators don't know that science and in some cases resist it. Well, today, our focus is on dyslexia. Children here who have it may not be getting the help they need. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine is back with us. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. I want to make sure we have a good grasp of dyslexia first. What What is it? It's a neurobiological difference in the brain structure. So in the brain areas involved with reading skills, there's a big difference between people with dyslexia and those without. People with dyslexia have difficulty with phonological processing, spelling, rapid naming. It is genetic and it affects 15 to 20 percent of the population. And so that translates to about 108,000 school children in Colorado, a considerable population. Yes. Advocates say few dyslexic children in Colorado today are getting the services that science says they should be receiving. Why is this issue starting to get more attention here? Well, to borrow a term teens use a lot now, parents of children with dyslexia are woke. That means they're aware, they're mobilizing, and they're pushing for change. They've even formed a group. It's called Colorado Kid. That's Colorado Kids Identified with Dyslexia. And many testified this week before the State Board of Education and and local school boards. Before we get to what parents want and what's happening or not in schools, uh, it's obviously concerning if a segment of the student population isn't getting the help they need. But Are there broader implications for society? Yes, they are profound. Uh, Dyslexia is the leading cause of reading failure in school dropouts. Also, among juvenile offenders, reading failure is the most commonly shared characteristic. In fact, there's one Texas study that shows half of prisoners have dyslexia. So if you think about it, if you could screen properly for dyslexia, get people the help they need, we should say it is identifiable with 92% accuracy at ages five and a half to six and a half. It could really have tremendous economic and social impacts. And it so impacts the lives of those students for decades to come. What happens in school with dyslexic children right now, Jenny? Yeah, this is the most common uh, story I heard in testimony, and it goes something like this. Parents start noticing that their children's having, their child's having trouble reading. They go to school. The school says, hey, you know, wait until second grade, might get better. Second grade's still a problem. Wait until third grade and so on. Parents with means who have the money wait nine months to get a private diagnosis from Colorado Children's Hospital, and this costs thousands of dollars. Then the family returns to the school. And I understand that even with a diagnosis, some are not getting the help they need in school. Yeah, it's really the luck of the draw. If you happen to attend a school that has a specialist who understands the type of instruction that dyslexic children need... The late diagnosis means children, and many of these are bright, some are even gifted. They start failing, uh, self-esteem drops. And I heard in testimony this week that 
thoughts can even turn to self-harm. Here we have a high school student, Rachel DeBroni. She testified before the Douglas County School Board about teachers who didn't understand you could be bright and not know how to read. My last year of middle school was not good. You see, I began to think it would be easier to be dead than it was to be alive. I felt very alone and like something was wrong with me. I began to hurt myself in small ways, and if it wasn't for my parents or my support system, it probably would have escalated. I hated myself. Rachel was told she would go into a class for kids who wouldn't go to college. This was really heartbreaking to her. Her family began working three jobs just to get her into a private school that knew the correct approach, and her reading has skyrocketed. Tell us about uh, some of the other stories you heard. Uh, Wendy Kirkpatrick, uh, she's a veteran teacher and a mother of a child who was diagnosed very late. She told the state school board that she learned more about the type of reading instruction that will help her son in the one month after his diagnosis than in all of her teacher training, which has amounted to about one hour about dyslexia in the 17 years. Holding a dyslexic child accountable for functional spelling and workload, like his peers, is much like penalizing a child with a physical disability because he doesn't meet the standard for a mile. Just last night, my husband and I were up late into the night trying to process with our sixth grader because he was frustrated that he was just given a textbook and a packet each day in one class and he can't keep up with the workload. He was given a 16% on a quick write because he could only write one sentence in three minutes. This is demoralizing, and it's not because that teacher isn't well-intentioned and isn't gracious and kind. It's because she just needs more awareness and needs to know what dyslexia is. Jenny, you referred to the type of reading instruction that will help her son. Yeah, so little bit of a biology here. Essentially, humans are wired to speak, but we're not wired to read. Reading is a code that we have to crack. How the sound of words we make translate to letters on a page. But before scientists really understood this, another way of teaching reading was really entrenched in our system, and that was called the whole language approach. The theory goes, if you immerse kids in a book-rich environment, teach them to use clues like pictures to decipher whole words, that kids will eventually learn how to read. But that approach doesn't work for dyslexic children? That is exactly right. Instead, the only type of reading instruction that works for all kids, according to science, is called structured literacy, explicit and systematic phonics instruction. So breaking words into sounds, into parts, learning how to decode in a sequential way. What's taught in many Colorado schools and teacher prep programs is a balanced reading approach, and that's kind of a combo of the two. Okay, and and that does not work for children with dyslexia? Exactly. They need that more explicit approach. Okay, the hybridized version doesn't cut it. How do we know that structured literacy, which you described there, how do we know that works? Numerous studies show it works for all kids, and it's incredible. I saw pictures of brain scans in typically reading children, and then children with dyslexia, incredibly different. But after remediation... The brain scans in children with dyslexia were nearly identical to the children without dyslexia. Oh my gosh, that kind of neuroplasticity. Yes. You also mentioned that early identification is key. Just expand on that. Yeah, the statistics are pretty stunning. 90% of children, if they get help by first grade, can eventually be reading on grade level. If they don't get help until age nine or later, 75% will struggle throughout their school careers. I think of Colorado having passed the READ Act several years ago, though, Jenny. It calls for screening for reading problems in the early grades, 
and for intervention. Is that helping here? So this is the deal. While the screeners identify early reading risk, they don't identify dyslexia. Oh. Parents testify that many children aren't getting caught. And even when they do get more in- intervention, it's not the structured literacy that's needed. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine joins us for an update on how this state is or isn't addressing children with dyslexia in Colorado. I understand that uh, parents testified on this at multiple meetings and a state legislative committee is looking at this issue. All these meetings have been quite emotional, Ryan. Here's Senator Beth Martinez-Humanic. It really hurts my heart that we have kids that cannot succeed because they don't have programs in place. So several legislative proposals are being floated, like requiring dyslexia awareness training for new and renewed teachers licenses. Another would require universal comprehensive screening of children for dyslexia. But it's really unclear if legislators will move on this. Uh, Here's Representative Jim Wilson, and he had this reminder for parents. School boards are responsible for what goes on in their districts. It is not the superintendent, the principal, the teachers. The school board is the one that oversees all that. Some change is happening in some districts, but some parents say they have lobbied school boards with no changes. Again, here's Senator Martinez-Humanic. We've got chronic academic failure because we're not providing even the screenings. And when parents are coming in, shame on these schools and shame on these administrations for telling them we're not going to talk about this. State education officials testified that Colorado does have rules in place about these science-based practices we've been discussing, but they acknowledged that the teaching standards for dyslexic students aren't being implemented consistently. They promised to look into this and look at what other states are doing. Thanks so much, Jenny. Thank you, Ryan. CPR education reporter Jenny Brendine on the challenges in Colorado to educate children with dyslexia. So again, tomorrow at 10 and 7, we present the final part in an education series from American Public Media. It's called Hard Words, Why American Kids Aren't Being Taught to Read. A world record sprinter has a chance to make history as the first American double amputee to qualify for the Olympics. But first, you'll need some help from researchers at the University of Colorado. CPR's Vic Vela has a story of perseverance. Blake Leeper was born without legs. He's been using prosthetics since he was nine months old. And when he was a boy, they often let him down. I remember when I was playing T-ball, my leg fell off. You heard him right. His leg fell off playing youth baseball. I just wanted to hit a home run for my mother and my father and my teammates. And I can remember as my, as, as my leg fell off and, you know, the inning was over, I got tagged out. And I was upset with myself. I was upset with the world. I was, I was upset with the situation. But that angry little boy with no legs can now run faster than most people in the world. Using high-tech prosthetic blades to compete in races, Leeper has broken American and world records. Now he wants to run for his country in the 2020 Olympics. All the things I've been through in my life, I'm a true believer that everything, everything, whether it's something big, something small, everything that we go through in our lives is for a reason, and it's preparing us for that that next mission. For the Tennessee-born Leeper, the road to the Olympics goes through CU Boulder. 
That's where he recently underwent strenuous treadmill endurance tests with the help of people cheering him on and the music of Little Wayne to keep him in the zone. Leaper's undergoing these tests because he and other prosthetic blade runners need to prove something to the International Association of Athletics Federations before they can qualify for the Olympics. They have to prove that their prostheses don't give them an advantage compared to non-amputees. That's CU professor Alina Grabowski. She runs CU's Applied Biomechanics Laboratory and is one of just a handful of researchers who study the physics of lower limb prostheses. It's speculated that because they are storing and returning energy but not using uh, muscular force, that they might have the ability to allow him to not fatigue in the same way as non-amputees. But Grabowski's previous research shows that's not the case, and that amputee runners may be at a disadvantage because prosthetics don't allow them to exert as much force off the ground. Grabowski studied several amputee athletes before, including a guy named Oscar Pistorius. There he goes. There's the man. Oscar Pistorius of South Africa. Pistorius was a Paralympic champion who went on to compete in the 2012 Olympics. But he wouldn't have gotten there without Grabowski's help. She did the same sort of research for him that she's doing with Leeper. Of course, as you know, Pistorius ended up in prison for murder. But before that, he inspired other amputee runners like Leeper, who earlier this year shattered the 400-meter sprint record once held by Pistorius. Back on the treadmill, Leeper runs full speed, his blades slapping on the deck, sometimes up to a minute at a time. After each grueling test, he practically collapses to the ground, heaving and reaching for the nearest wastebasket. As he runs, sensors in the treadmill gather data about his biomechanics, energy expenditure, and endurance. It's a lot of work, and Leeper sees his situation as anything but an unfair advantage. I was born without legs. You know, just the, the, the things that I have to go through just to get to the track. Right? I'm t- we're talking about sores, we're talking about infections, we're talking about sometimes my stumps swell up to where I can't even put on my legs. This is just one of many life challenges Leeper has had to overcome. He struggled with alcoholism and was once suspended from Paralympic competitions for testing positive for cocaine. Now he's on the recovery path, trying to make history. And his enthusiasm is obvious to the people he's working with at the lab, like grad student Vani Sundrum. Oh, he's great. He's such a fun guy. Like, when he comes in, he's just like, all right, I'm ready. Like, let's go. Who's playing music? Who has this dongle so I can play music on my phone? Leeper just smiles through the pain. You know, it does hurt, and I, and I am throwing no bell almost after every rep, but it's what, it has, to be. It's what it has to be done. And, and just, it's a level of acceptance, um, saying, you know, this is, this is who I am. This is what I got to do to get where I want to go, and let's put a smile on our faces and let's, let's get it done. Grabowski says she expects to finish her analysis in the next month or so. Then it's up to the IAAF to determine whether the world will see another Blade Runner in the Olympics. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. Colorado is a destination for jam bands. Groups like the Grateful Dead, Fish, and Widespread Panic perform here regularly for big crowds. Colorado is also the birthplace of one of the best-known jam bands out there, the String Cheese Incident. They formed 25 years ago in Crested Butte. Since then, the band has played its improvisational jams that blend bluegrass, rock, folk, electronica, all around the world. The band's latest album is Believe. I'm gone. 
string cheese incident performs Saturday night at the Colorado Kind Festival in Lyons. Founding member and guitarist Bill Nershi is here. Hi, Bill. Hi, Ryan. How you doing? I'm doing well. You've probably heard that song a thousand times <clears throat> by now, but it still makes you bob your head. <laughs> I guess I, I found myself playing the guitar part, air guitaring that one, <laughs> as I heard it. Um, I've heard it many times and played it many times at this point, too. But I, I like that. That's one of uh, Keith's tunes, Keith Mosley's tunes. It's nice to know that the music still inspires you. You moved from New Jersey to Telluride as a teenager. And uh, as I said, eventually started the String Cheese Incident in Crested Butte. Uh, these are towns with a population of just like a few thousand people. How did you build an audience for your music in those kinds of places? Well, uh, we met in Crest Butte as uh, just a, a group of ski bums looking to get through the winter. Huh. You know, let's put something together, make a little money. Maybe we can uh, even play for our ski passes. And uh, after we played a couple of times, we got uh, some really great responses from uh, folks in Crested Butte that we were playing music to. And I thought, uh, I have some great connections in Telluride. I had lived in Telluride for about uh, 15 years, you know. And uh, I I said, let's go back to Telluride and see how it goes over at some of the places I've been playing. And uh, we went and we played Telluride. And that uh, is a really enthusiastic music crowd there uh, due to all the festivals mm -hmm. uh and uh we were really well received so uh we kept kept the band going kept the band going and and a couple of years later uh we were enthused enough to uh to decide to go for it and hit the road and and you yeah. said that you originally played possibly for ski passes did you ever actually play for a ski pass oh yeah okay. anytime i could <laughs> but uh mike and i had had gotten together mike kang our mandolin mandolinist and uh, uh violinist had gotten together and played some opera ski shows and uh we were uh asked by by another uh, musician in town if we wanted to go up and play in this uh, particularly long ski line that they had <laughs> on the mountain. They said, we need some entertainment. This one line at Paradise Lift, it just gets, it's so long and people get so bummed out in that line. Just come up to the mountain and hang out and play your instruments in that ski line. I am so jealous of these people who early on got to see the string cheese incident perform for ski lines. <laughs> talk about talk about humble beginnings. What inspired you to pick up the guitar in the first place? Uh, it it was a, a a family thing. We uh, I I have uh, I've, I'm one of six, the youngest of six, wow. and uh, we always had guitars laying around and and music books songbooks laying around and uh, we would go up to the country in the summers and there was no TV there wasn't much in the way of entertainment aside from hiking around in the mountains there and and we would uh, get together quite often and and pull out the music books and sing songs I'm picturing one of those like 1960s family folk acts you know with <laughs> with a single release album that I'd find in the back of a record store these days <laughs> but no it's not quite that well we all we all played but I'm the only one that that was really inspired to uh, continue playing and try to make a living at it 
just because I didn't want to get a a real job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have to hear some more music before I ask more questions. There's a vast library of your live shows online. You do, though, record albums in the studio. In fact, you have a new recording facility in Louisville. And the most recent recording is last year's Believe. Uh, Why don't we just hear more? with our crew there and take it all in share stories lots of laughter let the dogs run nothing like a camp out for some real good fun so believe is the second record you've made with jerry harrison who is the guitarist for talking heads right we're uh uh i think everybody in the in the band is uh, a big fan of the talking heads and we we got to meet jerry harrison a couple of times and uh we hit it off with him and uh he's he's helped us a great deal in just uh bring bring our music to a to a focus to a focus what does that mean well is it like know, a therapy session well there there's there's six people in the band and and uh with you know may might have six different ideas of how how a song might might turn out or what it's going to sound like and you hear these things in your head and sometimes it's nice to bounce ideas off a producer and have him kind of corral all the different ideas uh, uh, that the band members might have and focus them into uh into one thought I feel like we have to hear the String Cheese Incident's take on the classic Talking Heads song, This Must Be The Place. Listening to Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Bill Nershey of The String Cheese Incident. You know, over the band's 25 years, you've covered songs by a wide range of artists, from Black Sabbath to Maroon 5. I love putting those up against each other. Is there an art to picking what songs the band will cover? Uh, yeah, there's a, there's uh, an art, there's a process. Uh, like I say, there's there's some there's six people in the band with different musical backgrounds and uh, tastes, and you know a song. Some songs are brought in as cover ideas, and they get a resounding "Hell yeah, let's play that song." Okay. I love that tune. It's unanimous. Or uh, you got to be kidding me. Uh, you really like that song. <laughs> kind of a a thing and then and then it's like well who likes this song and who doesn't and and uh, they can get vetoed uh 
They can get vetoed. They can get vetoed. And then there's all the area in between. You know, some members, it strikes a chord for them. Uh, and and for others, it's just like fingernails on the chalkboard. So so there's a process, you know, something like uh, uh, this must be the place, Naive Melody. That was one that was very easy to say that's a great song. We have a little different take on it. This is going to work. I like that the string cheese incident operates like the UN Security Council, though. <laughs> that there's veto, there's veto it's power. It's very much of a democratic process. But it's not just a question of covers, because you've also shared the stage with so many artists. Some recent highlights include country star Zach Brown, hmm. electronica artist Skrillex, and hip-hop singer Lauren Hill. Oh, that voice. My goodness. I know that you've answered this question a million times. There are online forums dedicated even to just getting the answer. But briefly, the story behind the name, the string cheese incident. Is it true you hate the name? Uh, the name, uh, it, it, <laughs> well, in a word, yes. Okay. <laughs> and all I can say to asking what the name means uh-huh. is... At two, Ryan? Yeah. I'm so sorry. I know it's the laziest question, right, for an interviewer? It's like, why did you write this book? Uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you the number one uh, uh, false answer. I mean, the number one answer to that question, which is, uh, as we lived in, in Crested Butte, there is a restaurant called Donitas. And... Uh, great Mexican restaurant there and they serve really powerful margaritas and you know we love that tequila most of us and uh, we went in there and maybe had too many margaritas and we had friends sitting at a table not too far away and a food fight ensued Mm. in that restaurant (laughs) and we were uh, if you know what 86th means to th- to throw away to 86 is to throw out get out yeah and don't come back and uh, we were 86 from that restaurant after the food fight which later became known as the string cheese incident it was not maybe string cheese maybe it was jack cheese maybe we should be known as the jack cheese incident Okay, I was going to say, I don't think of string cheese as being at a Mexican restaurant. Okay, all this, right, is, we're changing this... our name. Okay, <laughs> and you've you've heard it right here on Colorado <laughs> Matters. Uh, Donitas Cantina, still open in Crested Butte. Unfortunate how that name sounds like Don't Eat Us. Don't Eat but, Us, okay. well, that was what I called it, yes. Let's hear one of your recent studio collaborations, <laughs> okay. shall we? I mentioned that you have a new studio in Louisville. Uh, this is a song that features Bonnie Payne of Colorado band Elephant Revival. The track is My One and Only. Song in flight, hear all their voices as they cry. The String Cheese Incident with Bonnie Payne. 
We have less than a minute, Bill. I'm curious how you find the energy to play for several hours each night in a festival like Colorado Kind. Uh, I guess I guess we uh, really feed off the energy of the crowd, and it gets the adrenaline going. And I think that's a big part of the reason we're all skiers and outdoors men of you know riding, skiing, etc. And we like that adrenaline buzz. And uh, that's what that's one of the important things about playing music that we get out of it, and that keeps us keeps us going during the course of uh, a four and a half hour show. Performance and skiing. How Colorado Bill Nershi, guitarist for the String Cheese Incident, the Boulder Band performs Saturday night at the Colorado Kind Festival in Lyons, and Nershi plays an acoustic set with his wife Jillian tonight at Long Tucky Spirits in Longmont. This is Colorado Matters. <laughs>